everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is a Aftershock Monday episode, and we're here to talk about a new series. The first issue already dropped last month, Where Starships Go to Die. Second issue comes out in just a few days. I have the writer joining me to talk all about it. Mark Sable, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Jace. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I was, I was blown away by the first issue. So many different directions this can go in. Now, full disclosure, listeners, I've gotten a chance to read issue two already and appreciate that, Mark. We're not going to get into any spoilers for issue two. We are going to get into some spoilers that uh, happened in issue one, some details. So if you haven't read issue one, pause the podcast, go check it out, come back, listen when you're done. Uh, again, we won't spoil anything for two, but we're going to drop some hints. So uh, for anybody who's not familiar with the series, Mark, why don't you give them the, the elevator pitch uh, in your in your eyes? What's the story about? So uh, the story is about uh, mankind's first starship um, has launched, uh, was supposed to make first contact, uh, you know, takes place in the near future, um, but instead comes mysteriously crashing back to Earth. Um, and uh, it's about uh, a salvage crew that goes to a place called Point Nemo, which is a real place. Um, it's the most uh, isolated uh, oceanic, oceanic place on Earth. It's the farthest place from any land in the Pacific Ocean. And it's also uh, the, the spot of a real-life spaceship graveyard. So um, since the 70s, um, anytime uh, they want to intentionally ditch a spacecraft that's unmanned, it, or you know, from anything from like rockets to uh, the Mir space station, it gets dropped in this place uh, in the middle of the uh, South Pacific, which because it's so far from any land, if it's off by even a hundred miles, it's not going to hit anybody. Um, so that's the place where they go to find um, this starship. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, they uh, uh, then they discover more than just uh, the starship, the reason why it's, it's crashed and, uh, you know, some things that may or may not be aboard it and uh, some other things down, down there as well. Yeah, well, so interesting, uh, you know, this ship of scientists slash pirates, I'll almost say. Um, I mean, first of all, setting it in, you know, Point Nemo and obviously going under the water, it's a very deep place. It really is the final frontier on Earth here. You know, these oceans that are so deep that we, you know, can't even necessarily get down there. It's very dangerous, hard for us to survive, not even sure 100% what's down there. So there's that mystery aspect. So. I really appreciated you setting it there. But the other thing is you have this very, I don't want to say morally ambiguous because that's an overused term, but I'll say very complicated cast of characters who all seem to have their own motivations for wanting to find why the first starship, why the Daedalus came back down. And, uh, you know, one of them, a descendant from uh, perhaps Captain Nemo himself. So, Talk a little bit about the character development and, and your cast here and how you kind of put them together. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the, I'd say the two main characters to me are there's, um, uh, there's a the man who, who is supposed to be in, in, so this takes place in the near future. The world is kind of ravaged by climate change um, even more than it is now. Um, and there's a man who is uh, named, named Sam Keeley. We call him Sam. He's South African. He was supposed to be the first African in space and was actually supposed to be on the mission of the Daedalus, which is this uh, starship. Um, but because of a war, um, he's a pilot. He winds up having to fight in the war and not, uh, and not doesn't, uh, doesn't get to 
doesn't get to 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 to, to be this astronaut. So um, he's the person that is, uh, you know, I think of him as a protagonist. The the co-protagonist is, um, like I said, is um, this woman Kiathra, who's uh, an, uh, like this Indian shipping magnate. Um, she's a woman. Um, uh, if you've seen, like, uh, there's uh, she runs what's called like a shipbreaking yard, which is like there are places where they either wash up or just ditch, uh, you know, fishing vessels. Um, there's a ton in India. And, you know, that's how she's made her business is like tearing these things apart for scrap metal um, and then created a salvage uh, thing over this. Um, they're so purposefully. And then there's there's a few there are a few other characters. Um, the one thing I wanted to do with all the characters is they're all. There are no there are no white male characters in it. It's all everybody is um, you know is either uh, you know uh, African Asian. They're all from actually from the the global south. So there's an Argentinian, there's uh, an Indonesian, there's um, you know Indian and and South African character. Uh, there's a Filipino character, and a part of that was intentional because I wanted to show this world where. I mean, in reality, that part of the world is going to be hit a lot worse by climate change than than our part, um, which is, I'm assuming our listeners are either from America, Europe, you know, places that uh, are in the northern hemisphere that um, it's going to be bad, but it's going to be much worse there. Um, and I also just thought it would be an interesting thing to have a more diverse cast. Um, but yeah, they all have very different motivations. Um, you know, some are more pure scientific. Uh, there's this uh, Filipino oceanographer. Uh, there's an Argentinian ship surgeon. You mentioned there, there's a, the Indonesian guy is a pirate, a ref, supposedly reformed pirate who's kind of now like private security for the mission. Um, then, you know, so for Sam, this is a chance to the astronaut, like that's a chance for him to like, you know, he's promised like, oh, if they find the ship, it's supposedly intact. Like maybe he can have a chance to fly it. Um, for Kiathra, um, she, the reason she wants to retrieve this ship is that there is a, um, a fusion reactor on it that uh, is, was experimental. Um, the, the ship was like uh, a joint venture between the U.S. and the Chinese um, and the European Space Agency, and they didn't share this technology with anybody else in the world. And she believes if they, she, they can recover that fusion reactor, she's going to replicate it and basically just like give the world free energy. Um, and she's very much has this idea of like, um, so, uh, but there's a little bit, she's, a, she's definitely, I would say a more ruthless character. Like she's willing to push things further and risk everybody's lives more than the other characters are. Um, you know, and she has this sort of utopian view of saving the planet. Whereas Sam, in addition to his own personal dream, his thing is he feels like earth is already gone and that the key to mankind surviving is being an interplanetary species, or you know, even an interstellar species, and feels like, okay, well, recovering this starship is a way to continue that, and we've got to abandon Earth. So there's, you know, there's philosophical differences between the characters in terms of like how they see the world, uh, literally how they see Earth uh, and its future or or lack of it, and then there's just in terms of Sam is also a pacifist because he was in this war that cost him this opportunity to be an astronaut. Um, He's, he's a pacifist, which is interesting because I've never written that kind of character. I mean, I'm, I'm not a pacifist, I'm not a warmonger, but I, I just, you know, I, I don't, uh, I'm not that good of a person. Um, and, you know, so they're, they have very different, whereas, uh, you know, Kiara and, and, uh, 
you know, the, the pirate she's hired certainly have less compunctions about violence. So, um, you know, it's really interesting that they have these personality conflicts that are backed up by, by who they are, uh, their life experiences, how they see the future. And, you know, as because they're, they're headed down in these really small vessels um, to, uh, to go on, you know, and then to, to board these other vessels down there, um, you know, they're, they're put in really tight quarters. Um, and then, you know, even worse things start happening. And then that really tests uh, their ability to, to get along and cooperate and I find survive. It, I find it interesting because, yeah, Kiara's definitely seems to come across as kind of the ends justify the means for, you know, the choices that she's making. Whereas Sam's, you know, it, I don't think it's necessarily that he doesn't want, you know, things to go their their way or doesn't agree with Kiara. He's just kind of, hey, can we take a step back and just maybe take our time with this a little more methodical, maybe because of the regrets and mistakes he's made in the past, he doesn't want to, you know, go, go head, headstrong into something else and, and make some more mistakes. So is there a particular character that's easy for you to write or are, are there particular characters maybe that are more challenging to get into their headspace? You know, um, I'd say they're all, you know, I, I'd say they were all kind of equally fun and challenging. Um, you know, uh, I could, cause I could see all their different points of view. I think that there was maybe a challenge in writing Sam just because, okay, you know, how do you make, create a pacifist character without making them passive? Right. Um, and, and that I think especially becomes challenging the further on the story goes. I mean, it's already, it's already written and actually it's all already drawn all five issues, but I thought that got more challenging because it's like, okay, well now the, the physical conflict escalates and it's like, man, you know, sometimes you just want him to punch somebody. And I'm not saying, you know, he's not like uh, just going to let himself be, be, be beaten up. But um, it, it's, you know, I, I think most characters that I've, that I've written before would probably, you know, would probably hit somebody or shoot them. And, and I think not having that option um, was a challenge, but it was a fun one. I think, um, you know, a, one challenge, a character I enjoyed writing the more that it went along is there's, there's this is Danilo, who's this Filipino oceanographer. And I found him to be, he's kind of seems, he's a very like joyous character. And the person that's, I think, most excited in almost like a childlike way at all these discoveries. And that was fun. But as his story goes on, I don't want to spoil anything. You find that there's a deeper side to him. And that behind this childlike wonder, he actually is somebody that's really is willing to risk his life um, uh, and, and I found this other dimension to him that I hadn't really planned when I outlined the story. And that was fun. Like, I think my favorite thing as a writer is just when characters um, surprise me. And, you know, I find myself being like, well, I planned this, but like the character wants to do this. And it's like, in those situations, I almost always go in the direction of what the characters are telling me. Um, and that, you know, maybe requires some changes to how how things are structured or the end. But um, so that was fun. Um, so yeah, I, ho I hope that answers your, your question. They were all, they were all very different. I mean, that's the other challenge of it is writing a, 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 a you know, it's essentially, it's a five person crew. Um, you know, it gets, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that crew gets narrowed down um, as the, uh, you know, as there's, there's something on the ship that, I mean, you find out at the end of the issue, there, there's something on the ship that is uh, slowly killing and maybe replacing the characters. So um that, but still, even with that, like writing an ensemble, I hadn't done that in a while. 
um, done it with a couple books with Graveyard of Empires. I did it. It's a book I did for Image, and even, and with God Killers, which is the first book I did for um, for Aftershock. And it's always tricky because you still want there to be, you want everybody to get enough FaceTime. You want them to de- you want them to have room to develop. So I think um, I hopefully I pulled that off this time. But that's that's always a, a challenge. Like so, when I see people who write, you know, X Men or Avengers, I'm the hats go off to them. I think it's at some level, there's something a little bit easier because if you come in familiar with those characters, you don't have to do maybe as much development as if you're creating new characters, but it's still a lot to juggle and give people's favorites their screen time. And I don't know who people's favorites are going to be until I start getting, you know, by the time I start getting feedback, everything's already been written. So uh, other than, you know, from my editor, but. Yeah, that's um, a good, that's a good point. Um, And, and yeah, so so there is something else and we're, that's at work here, you know, and, and it gets a little away from the science fiction and maybe more into a little bit of the horror aspect. Um, and we'll, again, we don't want to spoil too much, but uh, we'll get into some, maybe some inspirations and, and uh, other stories and media that you've consumed that maybe fed into this. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the kind of alternate history aspect of the story. Cause that's a whole nother thing. I mean, you've packed this thing, you know, full of so many f- fun Ideas and I love the idea of alternate history. And you know, we mentioned that uh, Kiara, you know, claims to be de- descended from Captain Nemo, you know, J- Jules Verne, and all that sort of thing. And then there's this idea that maybe the Confederate States of America wanted to get go to the moon, and obviously from Earth to the Moon, another J- Jules Verne story, and, and that whole thing. And were did aliens come you know get into the whole pyramid thing are the pyramids really landing spots for aliens and you know the conspiracy theories and and you know alternate history it's it's a very fertile ground for for telling stories so um is that something that's always interested you and did you know that was going to be part of the story that you wanted to put in here early on yeah i'm trying to remember if i think it did so the, it's funny because the original title of the of the book was actually going to be point nemo um, so that's where the genesis of the story began was this idea of, okay, it's a spaceship graveyard. I found out it was this real thing. And I was like, well, okay, I've got to tell a story here. And I think the question was then, well, figuring out what story to tell. Um, so, yeah, I think there was always going to be like, well, what could be down there? I knew that I, once I figured out, okay, well, the starship's going to be down there. And I knew that the, the, the bad thing that was going to be on the, on the, on the, on the starship. But then I was like, well, that's, you know, I didn't know if that was going to be enough for, for five issues. Right. So I was like, well, what else can be down there? And yeah, I've always been fascinated by the the idea of alternate history. Um, Less by, I mean, I, you know, some conspiracy theories are fun. I I get nervous about conspiracy theories this day as they've become more, more real and people have started to believe some really crazy and dangerous stuff, but none of the conspiracy theories in this are, are real or, or like, um, and, you know, touch on that kind of stuff. So, yeah, um, again, if we're spoiling the first issue, you know, the first thing they find is this is a Confederate space space capsule. Right. Um, and that comes from, like you said, there, there's a there's a short Jules Verne short story called From Earth to the Moon, which I had a little um, fun with where that story takes place um, post Civil War by a few years. It's about uh, and it was actually one of the first movies was made about it, like it was a silent film. But basically, it's this thing called the the uh, the Baltimore Gun Club, which um, launches goes to Florida and launches um, like using a, like a big, huge um, like artillery cannon, like massively long, um, launches a capsule into space. They try to get to the moon. They don't. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, that became, I thought that was fun. I said, well, okay, like if this was set, you know, if they were in Baltimore, which even though it was in the union, it was a Confederate sympathizing state. I mean, that's where John Wilkes Booth was from. Um, if they were in Florida, that was, that was a Confederate state, you know, even if it was just after the civil war, like I was like, Oh, well, what if that was a last ditch attempt? And it became, uh, okay. Starting from there, I was like, well, what are the worst people in history who could have gone to space, but we didn't know about it. Um, and then it makes you question, especially it becomes this personal thing for Sam because here he was set to become, so I should be clear, like there have been African-Americans in space, but there has yet to be, uh, hopefully I will not be able to say this much longer, but th there, there's yet to be an Africa from the African continent in space. Um, there's even been an Afro-Cuban in space, but, um, and you know, that's despite South Africa as a space program, European Space Agency uses Africa to launch, but doesn't, uh, you know, has not really included African astronauts yet. So, you know, for him to discover that maybe the first people in space were the most, you know, this racist empire is just, just as adding insult to injury. Um, and then, you know, uh, you've read the second issue, like there, there are other evil empires throughout, throughout history. Um, I tried to keep it, you know, somewhat plausible. Um, I mean, I tried to keep everything somewhat plausible. Uh, you know, even the, the actual, the starship is based on, there was a, um, there was something called Project Icarus in the 1970s. So, and if you read the first issue, there's a, there's a, there's a like fictional timeline, but there's a lot, but about half of it is real. And um, so Project Icarus in the 1970s was like, well, what was a, a plausible interstellar spacecraft? And it would take about, at the time, it would take about 70 years so it's not a faster than light chip. My idea was like, okay, technology is advanced enough to make it like about a decade. Um, even the, this like horror entity that they find on the ship is based on something uh, that scientists have, have thought about. Um, uh, whether it's real or not, we, we, we don't know. And I won't give that away, but if I, I can tell people, if we talk about influences, I can tell people about it was inspired by something I heard on a podcast that I can rec recommend uh, listeners um, and that'll give them some, some clues. But uh, that was another thing that inspired this story was just um, so reading about, there was a couple, I mean, um, reading about this idea of there's this thing called the Fermi paradox, which is sort of why has, why have we not discovered, um, you know, uh, why have we not discovered an extraterrestrial civilization? Um, and, you know, to my mind, I'm like, oh, well, the universe is really big, uh, you know, and things are really far apart. Of course we have it. But, you know, we've actually scanned quite a bit of it. And, um, you know, there's just nothing. There's just been no evidence. And so one of the theory, you know, so one, one of the theories is that there's, um, you know, one, it's possible there's none exists. Uh, it's still possible that we're so unique. In which case, I think, and this goes to different, how different characters view the things. In this case, that makes this planet even more worth protecting. Um, the other is it has, another hasn't happened yet. It just hasn't been uh, born yet. Um, the other is actually maybe life is pretty common. And like, this is where a lot of people lean is like, actually, given the number of stars and planets, like there should be intelligent life should have had the chance to form elsewhere. The other is that there's something called the great filter, which there's some event that no civilization seems to be to get past. So 
Maybe it's nuclear war. Maybe it's destroying their environment. Um, or maybe it's this other thing. Um, and, you know, AI is another thing that, that's been posited. Um, but, but there's another thing, which I won't name, that is like, well, maybe there are these civilizations and there's something that's stopping other civilizations from advancing. Um, and, you know, maybe what if they saw like the same thing our characters are discovering that it's the worst of humanity is getting into space. Um, because even if you look at, I think part of what the, the, the philosophy behind these alternate space things is like, even if you look at the real life space race, um, and I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of, of NASA and I wish we would do, do more in space, but like, you know, look, um, it has its own dark history. We used Werner von Braun, who was, you know, a Nazi war criminal, um, you know, to help build our rockets. Um, you know, you can watch, uh, you know, we, we've uh, discounted the contributions of the African-American women scientists who, you know, who, who were extremely valuable to it. Um, you know, the Russians had their own stuff and, and really the entire space race is really built around or in part built around, okay, let's see if we can build, uh, you know, uh, you know, let's see if we can build better delivery systems for nuclear weapons. I know, yeah, it has this nice side effect that it can get us into space. So, um, you know, what if something out in the universe took a look at that and was like, uh, yeah, you know, mankind should stay where it is at best should stay where it is. Um, and again, I don't want to spoil too much, but that's, um, that may, you know, that might be part of what, um, of this thing that they're discovering down there, or the reason these other, all these ships um, have crashed there and been unable to complete their missions. Yeah. It's so interesting to me, especially this idea of, you know, people going to space because we, we do see it as this, you know, this mystery, this frontier, this thing to aspire to. And if it's the worst of us that are making it there, that obviously that's not a, that's not a great thing. So did you come up with that idea first, or did you come up with the idea of, uh, of Sam Keela first as, as, you know, this uh, African born uh, person of color who, you know, that that's his dream. That's his goal. Cause it, it, it just fits so beautifully. It might've been, it might have been somewhat simultaneous. I have to go back. It's been, you know, I have to think back because I know I remember Point Nemo came first, and then the idea of what their mission is. Um, it's sometimes characters tend to not come to be to be the first thing I come up with, um, but they're the essential thing. So, like, mm-hmm. I knew that, like, you know, certainly by the time I pitched it to AfterShock, it had all those elements, um, and it's to me the story just doesn't come alive if you don't have characters that not just are interesting in terms of like sound bites I can give you or, or things like that. But like, I've got to feel like they're real people that have real needs and that they come into conflict with each other. And then the story real, that's when the story really comes in alive is like, once I started writing scenes between Sam and Kiara and they have a conflict, but they also need each other, right? Like she needs an astronaut to, to, to help salvage this thing. He needs, somebody to go down there and get it. Um, they need to convince each other um, of different things and try to convince each other. And they've got different ways of doing it. And that's when the story started to come alive. And then as I added other characters, um, you know, they had to be different and bring something different. So yeah, I wish I remembered exactly at what stage in the creative process um, they, they came along. I mean, it was pretty early, but it's still, even when you come in, and I tend to write 
So, you know, I gave them a pretty detailed pitch um, and then I gave them a really detailed and they don't, they didn't ask for it, but I give them a very, very detailed outline. Um, I tend to work best doing that. It's interesting because I've been asking other writers uh, whether they do that. And it seems to really vary. Uh, I, before I started outlining, I can't imagine, I, I, I felt like I would get stuck in the middle of things and not know where to, and especially with like screenplays and just not know where to go. But even though I do that detailed outline, things change a lot once you actually start scripting number one and I have the characters talk to each other. But then once the art comes in and, you know, I'm sure you're going to ask this, but of course, so the artist is this great, great guy named Alberto Locatelli. And, um, you know, he's an Italian artist who I've never met uh, in person, but uh, he's been a joy to work with. And he's somebody that is, I think he's a great storyteller, but I think, probably my favorite thing that he does is just his, his characters are so expressive. And so they become different characters once the art comes in and I see their facial expressions and their body language and their designs. And it's like, um, and in many ways, I think in some ways, I think he helps one thing he did, whether it was conscious on his end or not. Um, and I guess it probably was, but like, I think he helped, he brings like a sort of a fun sense to this. It's a dark story in some ways, not saying ending or not, but just, it's a, you know, it's a sci-fi horror, like, you know, like thing where people are getting killed off one by one. And he brings, I think this sort of, there's a joy in his characters. And I think that makes me, you know, that helped make them more three-dimensional and help challenge me to say, okay, well, you know, let me take advantage of the range he has um, to show them, you know, angry and happy and sad and, and so that, you know, that also, you know, was, was part of the fun of writing this is letting, you know, letting the story evolve and, and take it to different, even though I, I thought I planned it out really well, letting, letting the characters and the art take it in, in some different directions. Yeah. And again, there's a, definitely a, a bit of a horror feel when we start moving into issue two. And that kind of brings me to, uh, you know, what I mentioned earlier about talking about some of the inspirations for the story, obviously, you, you know, your love of alternate history and it fits so well, you know, we talked about how it fits so well with who Sam is as a character. Um, but I get a little bit of a thing vibe, John Carpenter's the, the thing. So are there, are there any particular stories that you're, you feel like you're drawing inspiration from things that you've learned? So, in so the absolutely the thing, um, you know, uh, another one. Uh, so then there's, uh, of course, alien, um, just, I mean, less because of the actual alien, um, although there is there is a, you know, if you want to call it monster, entity, whatever you want to call it, the nature of it really isn't totally revealed until the last issue. Um, but although, and it's grounded in, again, it's grounded in some, some real science, which I think is pretty cool, but, um, uh, but also but just the idea of, and I think it's what it has in common with the thing of people being in really close quarters with something dangerous. And right, and then, Yes, the like an alien. I mean, the alien, the design of alien is amazing. And I mean, that's so much of the success of that movie. Um, uh, but what's also great about that movie is like, okay, how do the characters start reacting to each other in these already confined quarters? And they've, you know, uh, another movie would be, I mean, uh, would be uh, The Abyss, um, which is also about a recovery mission underwater. And in fact, I had to make sure I didn't rewatch it because I was like, I don't want to, um, I didn't rewatch any of the movies that I, that inspired this because I didn't want to go too far into those influences. But um, I will say it's very different from, 
you know, there, there's a lot of differences from the abyss, but I like the idea of, okay, you know, water being, you know, the, the sea as being like, maybe not the final frontier, but this huge unexplored and very, very dangerous place. Um, and, you know, that had its own, uh, less of a horror element and more of a sci-fi. So that's where the, the combination comes in. Um, another one that it's funny, so I was just talking to you about this with another creator, um, a friend of mine named Brett Lewis, who, is a, who wrote a great book that I recommend to people called The Winter Men um, with the late John Paul Leone. They just did a fundraiser and for an artist edition of that. Um, anyway, yeah, he did. Um, uh, he finished up the Thief of Thieves run for uh, yes. Skybound also is really excellent. So he's uh, one of my great friends, one of the people I admire most and, and whose opinions I, 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 you know, when he gives me a compliment, it's a, it's a huge thing. Um, so anyway, we're talking about a movie. Um, we're talking about another movie called Outland, um, which is, this is not based on that. I, that he lent me in exchange for uh, the DVD of uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and another DVD. I'm, I'm blanking that. And we were joking, we have to do a hostage exchange, but this movie Outland, which my next Aftershock book that isn't out yet is, uh, or hasn't been announced yet fully is kind of influenced by, and Outland is this, Sean Connery as a, like a space marshal on a, a place based from, it was directed by this uh, director called Peter Yates. And he directed a movie called 2010, which is a sequel to 2001, a space odyssey. And we were discussing how it's an underrated film. Um, and that was an influence because so one of the many things, like you said, there's a lot that goes into this mix that I didn't mention is so part of the urgency to retrieve this, this space, um, the, the starship is, there is a like potential World War III is brewing right at this area because um, while the U.S. and China had cooperated to to do this starship, um, they uh, they have long since fallen out, um, and now both their navies are in the South Pacific. Um, I would say steaming. I guess they're not steam engines, but headed for, you know sailing uh, for, for for Point Nemo, and they both are gonna. Are, are come to blows over this. And so if, if anybody hasn't seen 2010, it's this joint, it takes place in the Cold War, this joint US-Soviet mission to go uh, find out what happened in 2001. And then war breaks out on earth and what does it do to this crew? Um, and so that's a part of it. And then you also find, you know, well, when they find the Daedalus and they find out what happened, like, when when there was a war that breaks out and how does it affect that crew? So I like the idea of like, well, when you're in space, what happens when, um, you know, what happens when uh, your, your, your home countries start, start fighting? And, you know, again, it also adds this, you know, they're a salvage crew and yes, they've got um, a former pirate and, and his men like as security, but like that's nothing against, you know, these superpower navies. So it really, uh, it adds this ticking clock. It adds another sense of danger. Um, and I think with, you know, with horror, you always want to ask that question of like, well, who's the real monster? Is it this, is it this alien or, or robot or whatever? Um, is it that, or is it, or is it, or are humans the worst monster? And you see sometimes they do the worst things to each other. I mean, an alien, it goes back to, I guess he's technically an Android, but like, you know, it's the corporation, right? And, and in aliens, you, you see it even more like, yeah, is what's worse. This, this, like, you know, this, this alien species or like this ruthless corporation that's willing to sacrifice 
its own crew or colonists to, um, you know, to get, uh, you know, to, to get control of it. Um, I don't have quite the same, there's not that same corporate uh, thing in this, but, uh, but yeah, it's, there's other, uh, you know, there's other human, you know, just, just nation states and, and battling, uh, you know, battling for resources and uh, technology that they've forgotten. I mean, that's another thing is like, part of the reason they want this ship so badly is they've, they've lost the ability to create it because so many years have passed. Um, and that might sound crazy on a certain level, but if you think about it, like we've, we haven't, um, you know, with all, even though they're doing all this stuff with, um, you know, with, with private spacecraft now with uh, SpaceX and, and, and I forget what Amazon's program is called, but, but um, you know, they're having to like reinvent the wheel in a lot of ways because like all the, not necessarily like the technology, but all the, all the brains that we had working on, on rockets in the, you know, in the sixties and seventies are, are gone. Uh, and we've, then we focused on the space shuttle and that got canceled. So it's like, you know, we think of science as this linear thing, but you know, there've been plenty of dark ages in our, in our history. So this idea of like, well, now we have to go back and it's like, well, yeah, well, it's easier if we can just like go salvage this thing, even if we have to fight and not cooperate, then to actually put the, you know, the, the money and effort into, uh, into building these things. Um, yeah, it's not an uncommon thing for institutional knowledge to be lost when people move on and, and whatnot. And yeah, you definitely get that sense in the story because it's, a, I mean, and that's part of why Kiara's, I feel like is so kind of stubborn and like, no, you're not. I was here first, international water, salvage law, law applies. So you have that whole aspect too, you know, China and, and the U.S. willing to do whatever to get the fusion reactor back. Um, you have that aspect of it, you know, again, is it this entity that's the, that's really the worst? Is it these nation states? Is it humanity itself as a species for destroying the planet? Like there's all these questions that are very relevant and there certainly are no easy answers. And I hope that anybody who reads this doesn't go in thinking, Hey, guess what? Mark's going to give you the answers to all these questions. Because no offense, Mark, you seem like a really intelligent guy, but if you had the answers <laughs> to those questions, you probably wouldn't be writing comics, right? Yeah, no. I mean, I, I still probably <laughs> enjoy writing comics more, but no, I, I certainly don't have the answers. And I think, you know, certainly I hate books that that preach to me and, and it, it doesn't matter if I agree with it or not. I mean, you know, uh, I like books that ask questions and don't right. have easy answers and leave me thinking. And that's what I want the, you know, I never want to condescend to the audience and say I'm smarter than them. One thing I've discovered writing comics, honestly, is I feel like my readers are usually as smart, if not smarter than me. Um, they can see things coming. So it's always a challenge to try to like, you know, okay, how do I give them what they want while still surprising them? But also, you know, but part of that is also just saying like, okay, here are these different characters and you might, you know, different people might come to the book and, and have different thoughts about who should win, you know, and whose philosophy they agree with more. Um, and that's great. You know, I think, you know, if this, you know, the best thing I can hope for is like, I'm not looking to change anybody's minds or, you know, people's ideas about global warming or things like, you know, climate change are probably already set. And I don't think like, um, I'm going to change them. Um, I'd love them to think about it. And, and obviously I don't think any of these issues are really simple, but like, I think, you know, if you can spark conversation um, about any of this stuff, whether it's the space, space race, whether it's climate change, whether it's, you know, 
I don't know, war and pacifism, or whether it's just, you know, which character do I like better? You know, honestly, the most important thing is I want people to feel these characters are real things and not, they're not, they may have different philosophies, but they're not, the characters come first and their philosophies come second. Um, you know, so just the idea of which, who they like better and who they'd rather, they want to see win, like, that that's the kind of thing I, I live for. I want, I really hope the audience feels emotionally attached to these characters because, you know, that's what I look for. I think it's the hardest thing to do. I, I teach writing um, uh, for the School of Visual Arts in New York. I do it online, but um, and I've been doing it for, with uh, Jim Rugg, who's another, who's a cartoonist. Uh, we've been doing it together. Uh, Nathan Fox, I should say, runs this program. So there's a lot of comic people in it. I've been doing it since 2013. And, you know, the thing I've learned, I learned so much from my students. They're really talented. Um, uh, and most of them are artists as well as writers. So even though I teach writing, like I, I'm, I'm just awed by what they can do. But the thing that I've learned writing, I think, is just that like the hardest thing to do in writing and the most important is to engage people emotionally. So like no matter how cool my ideas sound, none of that or, or, or don't sound, um, you know, or how like none of that matters if you don't care about the characters. And and it's not an easy thing. I mean, there are tricks you can do to get people to to care about characters, but it's like, oh, but if you can do that, you can overlook a multitude of sins. Um, and you know, as a as a as a reader of comics and watcher of films and readers of books and, and everything else, I mean, to me that's the most important thing. If I'm like if I'm invested and I need to care what happens to the, care what happens to these characters, not just in terms of whether they live or die, but like Oh, okay. Are you going to please, you know, like change this stupid opinion of yours or um, get along with this other character? If, if you get me in like that, then I'm, then I'm sold. Um, and I can, um, and you know, the other part is anytime you're writing science fiction or horror, you've got to have, um, you know, I think when you have a fantastical element, things need to, the rest of it, I feel like needs to be grounded. So that's why I'm like, okay, well, there's, there's some kind of alien or horror entity in this, like, that means I need to get the science stuff. You know, obviously it's a world where there's a starship, which ours doesn't have. So I'm already bending the rules a little bit, but like everything needs to be basically as, you know, as well-researched as I can get it. Uh, but also the characters, I think more importantly, the characters have to feel real. If all the science is good, but like the characters are doing things you don't feel like you believe they would do, then like, I know I'm going to lose the readers. So hopefully they are believable characters and, you know, and compelling ones. Um, so that's my hope. I'm glad that you seem to be one issue in and, and two issues in, I guess, engaged. So that, that makes me really happy to hear. Yeah. Well, I always say my favorite comics, like you mentioned, are, are ones that make me think. Um, but yeah, I, I, I imagine that the kind of the writer equivalent of that is, is, you know, comics that, like you said, engender conversation. Cause, cause that's the thing. None of us have the answers. These aren't easy questions. These aren't easy problems, climate change, class, you know, issues, race issues, um, you know, these big philosophical questions that us as a society, we've always struggled with. So, but the important thing is to talk about it, to, to start the conversations and to at least, you know, make the effort to try to find the, the common ground. So uh, I really uh, appreciate that. Um, and in terms of engendering reaction, I always say, and I and will fight anybody about this, uh, maybe not physically, but I'm gladly debated uh, that comics are art, you know, like it, it is an art form, both in the visual and the, the narrative. And and my contention's always been that the whole reason art exists is to evoke an emotional response to somebody, whether Absolutely. you're, yeah, whether you're hearing a, a piece of music 
or looking at a sculpture or a painting or reading a comic, right? Or a, a film or a TV show, it's all art, right? And it's all supposed to remind us why we're alive and make us feel something. So I 100% agree with you on that. And kind of on that note, let's talk a little bit about the, the art. We already mentioned uh, Alberto, but your colorist on the series, Wancho, has done this incredible job, uh, and especially as we start getting into the second issue, and you'll, you guys will all see it when it comes out a little bit more of a dark tone as the horror aspects of the story start to, to come out. So he's really engendering the, the tone. Um, and certainly when you talk about a story, if it's taking place underwater, you have that absence of light. There's a lot of, you know, dark blues and purples and whatnot. So uh, his, is he just nailing the, the aesthetic that you were going for? He really is. Um, yeah. Uh, I think, and, and it's important. I mean, look, I think colorists are important in all books I and mean, obviously black and white books, maybe, maybe less so. Um, but, um, you know, I'm glad to see colorists and letterers like getting their names on books, colorists getting recognition. You know, when I first started in comics, that wasn't the case. Um, and it's great because I've gotten to see the colorists that I've worked with um, on Graveyard of Empires. I've got to work with um, Matt Wilson, um, who is now a multiple time Eisner Award winner. It's so great to see colorists get their recognition. I'd like to see letters get more recognition and everybody it's, it's, um, you know, um, that's a whole other thing, but what, but Wancho has done is great. And I have to give Aftershock credit for, for finding, for finding him. Um, and, you know, he's done work for them before they showed me his other work and I was like, Oh, this is great. Um, but even seeing it was great. You know, you never know. Can he, can he do this stuff? And some of it is written in like the lights go out on the ship. So I have like those red emergency lights come on that was written in, but a lot of the stuff he just figures out on himself. And yeah, you know, you're dealing with these, you know, old ships, how are they lit inside? You know, um, you're dealing with, um, you know, the fact that the ocean is deep, you, you know, is completely dark. You're later dealing with, you know, they're, they're dealing with flashbacks um, in space. Um, how is that, you know, how does that look? And then, you know, then there's a whole other aspect to it, which is, um, you know, and I remember I'll name drop another uh, a colorist that is a good friend of mine who, who actually did the cover colors. So cover art is done by Jeremy Hahn, um, who's a fantastic artist, and also a really good friend. The, co the, the co colors on the cover are done by um, Nick Filardi, uh, who's another great colorist um, and was the first colorist I ever worked with on a book called Grounded way back in the day. Um, and I remember when I was first doing Grounded, uh, and I'll, I'll bring this back to Wancho, I swear, but um, I remember getting, uh, getting the first issue, and it was the first comic I've ever done. You know, it's through Image, so it's creator-owned. Um, and I remember looking at it and being like, wait, it's, it's why didn't you draw the sky blue? Uh, first of all, I noticed, like, okay, like, he's like, he didn't say this, but Ivan Brandon, who was editing the book, he's also a comic creator, well, he's like, Mark, take a look at the sky. Like, is it really blue? And it's like, yeah, most of the time it's, but like, actually, depending on the time of day, it's not quite blue. And it sounds like a really simple thing, but I was like, oh, but the other thing is you realize is like color can be is such a way to evoke mood. And I think Wancho, even though me, you know, I forget where Wancho is located. I'm, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. Alberto is in Italy. Uh, I believe in Milan, you know, we're all working in these different places, but Wancho was able to pick up not just on the writing, but on the art and the mood of the scenes and use colors in ways that like are not reality breaking, but are not necessarily like super exactly like how the lighting would actually look, which would probably be pretty boring. 
and using it as a way to enhance the emotional intensity of the scene. And that's just something that, you know, I feel like most readers and probably including myself, you know, before I became a comics professional and got schooled by all these great colorists, you know, would maybe not notice consciously, but it's there, you know, and, you know, it's man, it's like the more I work with artists and colorists and letterers um, and editors, I've got a, uh, Christina Harrington is the editor on this book, along with Mike Martz and uh, Teddy Leo. Um, the more I appreciate their jobs and and how much work it is, um, but uh, especially in, like artists, man, compared to me, I put a lot of work into my comics. I put way too much work into the research, but like, you know, it's still, I can finish a comic in such a shorter time, although Alberto is extremely fast. I mean, all the issues are done, which wouldn't be the case necessarily with one issue out, uh, you know, they require three issues to be done, but he's uh, super ahead of it. But, you know, I just, I, I just acquire so much more respect for their, for their skills and what they bring to it. And sometimes it's in big ways and sometimes it's in little subtle ways, but that are still really important to just like how the things, like you say, it's like looking at a painting where, you know, I've, I've taken up art as like a hobby during the pandemic. Um, uh, and, you know, not, I don't know, maybe one day I'll do a, I'll do a comic, but mostly it's just been for my own enjoyment, but man, I've learned so much stuff. And it's like you said, I can look at a painting and I know more than I used to, but like, it's still, it's like, it has that emotional effect on me before it has the, like, where I look at a book or a comic, especially, and it's like, okay, I can generally, I can still enjoy it, but I'm always going to see like my gear, how the gears are turning. Like, okay, I'm thinking about how the person made this when I look at a, a painting or I hear a piece of music, um, it's more that emotional thing. And the more I learn is like, okay, well, like the strength of that emotion that I'm feeling is something that was deliberate. And it's something that took a lot of work to do. And I may not be able to articulate how the artist is doing it. Um, so, but, um, but they are doing it. And I'm, you know, it's been a fun learning process to, to see that stuff, to, to, to learn how, my collaborators are doing it. And I, I always say this, but, you know, um, it's great to have the book come out um, and get into readers' hands. But honestly, my favorite part of the process, I mean, so that would be my second favorite, but my favorite part of the process is, is when the art comes in. And I've been really fortunate and I've lost track of how many creator-owned series I've done. It's been a, a lot, but like, man, um, I'm never disappointed by the art coming in. I've just been so fortunate with the creators that I've worked with. Um, honestly without exception doesn't mean there haven't been creative differences or people haven't had to exit books for for personal reasons or whatever it just things haven't worked out um but just it's honestly it's always as good or if not better than what i imagined and again it's like what i said it's like that's when the book comes to life um and i'm aware that like you know i know writers get our names are first and in many ways comics have become more of a writer's medium and, you know, I'm glad that it's, I enjoy that there's, it's a writer's medium in some way, but it's, it's never really a writer's medium. It's, nor do I think it's only an artist medium. I think it's both. And I, so to me, you know, it's, I like to see my artists get credit and I always want to try to give them as much credit as possible for, you know, being at least half of, of the process, if not, if not more. Yeah, kind of on that note, you mentioned uh, Alberto and his the emotion he evokes in both facial expressions, body language, that kind of thing, uh, and your favorite part being getting the art in. So, uh, 
when the art started coming in, the first art for the series, did did he get it right away? Did you guys talk about like the way the character design, world design sort of thing? Or did you just go, okay, here's the script, you know, go nuts. And did he nail it from, from the start? Talk to us a little bit about that. Like, yeah, he nailed art. it pretty, pretty early. There've been some things where, you know, I may have given some notes, but really, man, he's been, I'm almost afraid to say how easy he is. I'm not afraid to say how easy he is to work with. I'm always afraid to say how fast he worked because I feel like I don't want other people who expect him to be like, right. you know, okay, well, let's give him two, let's give him two issues a month, um, you know, and, and, and take advantage of it. But uh, no, he's, he was a joy to work with. I mean, a, you know, I, I want feedback from the artist too, which is something that we've gotten where he'll be like, and that's good. We're like, you know, we were collaborators on this where he'll say like, you know, I don't think a character should be wearing a helmet in this scene or not. Like, you know, they're underwater, right? And like they're on ships. Like, would there be either, you know, sometimes it's funny because you'd think it would be the other way around, but like there were times where he'd be like, no, they should be wearing a helmet. And I want them not to wear the helmet so that we can see his great facial expressions that he does, (laughs) but he'll be like, well, if you think about it, you know, he's actually coming from the science angle and that like probably wouldn't take it off. And I was like, okay. And, you know, but, but that's good. I like getting, and I always tell artists like, you know, please, the script is a blueprint, but it's not a, um, you know, it's a, it's also the start of a conversation and please feel free to come back and forth. And, you know, different artists take me up to it to different degrees, but I feel like, especially when there is, you know, with image, when I've done books, there's usually no editor. So it's just me and the artist, but sometimes with Aftershock or even more Aftershock, there's an editor, but I can talk to the artists. They're great. You know, when I've worked with Marvel or DC, depending on the editor, sometimes they don't want you talking to the artist. And I understand where it's like, well, okay, they have an editorial vision for the whole line. And like, you don't want to, and I never want to like, like try to get around the editor by doing something, but like having that communication, I always tell them, you know, the script is a, is a start of a conversation and they should feel free to like push back. They should feel free to like, you know, I'll put the number of panels in, but I generally don't put the layout or something. And honestly, if they need another panel or they want to do it with less panels, don't worry, I'll figure it out in the lettering stage. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I want them to design. So I'll give reference for, um, you know, specific things like real spacecraft that they're finding down there, or here were the plans for this original starship. But then I'm like, you know, please make it your own or for the, 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 this entity that they're finding down there, that was a big thing where I was like, I, I gave, I had some visual ideas of how it looked, but I said, these are my ideas. Here's some, here's some things that I drew from inspiration and you might find useful, but make it your own because, um, you know, I don't, I think a, you want it to be something that they create, like they'll do their best work. Mm-hmm. And also it's like, it's no fun to be like, to feel like I'm dictating it, you know, um, they're, they're, they're co-creators on this. So yeah, he, he nailed it from the beginning and was just, you know, a gr- great throughout, throughout this process. Um, you know, anybody that gets to work with him, um, hopefully me again at some point, but you know, anybody else like you're, you're getting, uh, you're, 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 you're getting a real, uh, special guy. And, um, I feel like, um, you know, I hope this is a breakout book for him because, um, he's somebody that definitely deserves more exposure, uh, in the States. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. The art's fantastic. Well, I really appreciate the time, uh, Mark. Uh, again, everybody, 
It's a really, really fantastic book. Highly recommend you go and check it out. Uh, second issue is about to drop this week. So go check it out. I'm sure you can get issue one. If your retailer doesn't have it, it hasn't sold out. So ask them to order uh, a, you a copy of issue one or pick it up digitally. So uh, where starships go to die. Uh, again, Mark, appreciate the time. Best of luck on the series. Uh, as we're winding down here, is there anything coming up, either issue two or, or beyond that I haven't had a chance to see? Any any event, uh, any any story beat or visual in the book that you can't wait for it to be out there so you can see what reader reaction is? Is there anything you can um, think of that comes to mind? Man, there's so many. I think what's going to be cool is, um, again, seeing like the different, you know, thinking about the bad guys in, in, in 20th century history and seeing uh, like thinking about, well, okay, which are the worst ones that could have gotten into space, seeing like what they're, and thinking about the unique aesthetics, some of these evil empires, let's say, um, you know, there's a hint in the first cover to one of, one of them might be like what their spacecraft might look like, what, what inside and out, like, what their missions might have gone through. I think that stuff is kind of cool. Um, the other stuff is so hard to say without spoiling it. Um, but I will say, you know, you're just, you're going to get to know the characters more and more. There's just, I think hopefully every issue coming up has something surprising. Um, and I'm hopefully by the end, um, I had a series announced by um, Aftershock at last Comic-Con. They didn't give the name for it. Um, but they did the artist whose name is Andrea Olimpieri. Um, he's, uh, he's also an Italian artist. Um, we just showed the art from it, but um, that book should be coming out in November. So at some point, um, I think soon there should be news about that. And it's another science fiction book um, from Aftershock. Uh, it's actually going to be the first thing I've done for them that doesn't have any horror aspect in it. So hopefully that'll give people something to look forward to too. Um, I'm excited about both, but yeah, I just hope people check this series out and enjoy it. And, you know, you can find me if you've got questions or just want to reach out and have reactions. I'm at Mark Sable on, on Twitter and Instagram and all that. Uh, and, you know, I'm always happy to, to chat books with people. So, um, so yeah, but uh, thank you so much for having me and, and, and for uh, reaching out about this book. Cause it's, uh, it's one we've, we've all, all worked really hard on and, I'm proud of so uh, excited to see people people being intrigued by it. Yeah, I appreciate the time, Mark. Appreciate the insights and kind of the the behind the scenes, uh, much more intricate than I than I realized. Which I suppose when I stop and think about it, it, makes sense because again, we've talked about all the different aspects of the story. You know, the social relevance of the issues, uh, you know, climate change, alternate history, horror. It, it's all in there, everybody. So again, if you want to know. Uh, when the next issue is coming out, it's uh, on July 13th, Wednesday, July 13th. So you have a little bit of time. You have time to go read issue one, pick it up. If you haven't had a chance to read it, make sure you tell your retailer that you'd like a copy of issue two. So they'll hold one for you. I'll put uh, a link to both Mark's Instagram and his Twitter handle in the show notes, everybody. So if you're having trouble finding them, you can go click there. Give him a follow. That way, uh, you know, when uh, other works that he's doing, like the, the uh, aforementioned upcoming series from Aftershock is coming. Uh, and yeah, give him plenty of questions uh, once you've had a chance to check out where starships go to die. So again, Mark, appreciate the time. Uh, it's been fun. Likewise. Thank you so much. And to you listeners, we want to thank you for your support and for listening as always. And we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. 
please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.